0: Second Peter chapter 1. This morning we will be closing out the first chapter. I'll start reading in verse 12 of chapter 1. Peter writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, the qualities that were named in verses 5 to 11 by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now as we stand before Your Word. We thank You for this letter. We thank You for the Apostle Peter who wrote it. We thank You for the truths that are here. May we pay attention to them. May You help me this morning as I seek to preach them to Your people. May I speak with clarity and with understanding, and may You give them ears to hear. Father, may Your people be humbled, may they be lifted up, may they be comforted, may they receive comfort by Your Word, may they receive knowledge and understanding by it. I ask that You would help me to forget myself as I preach from this Word, that you would use this vessel of clay to put on display the magnificence of your power that is proclaimed in the gospel. This is what we pray for, and this is what we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, in our time together, we were looking at how Peter, in verses 12 to 15, has made it his aim to spend the last days of his life, however long that was, reminding these Christians and us what we have been granted in the gospel, which is all things that pertain to life and godliness. We went over that in verses 3 and 4. If you remember, we said that what is required of us, which is godliness... God has provided for us in the Gospel. Peter also reminds us of the qualities of godliness that we will have. In some measure, we will have them. In some measure. Because when we show these qualities, it confirms that we do indeed know Jesus. Remember, they are the fruit, not the root. You have these because you know Jesus. You show them because you already know Jesus. They are the result of knowing Christ. And we saw that Peter is going to remind these Christians about these qualities even though they know them and are established in the truth that they have. They need to be reminded again and again, just like we do. As Mike said last week, In his sermon, Peter knows the tendency that we have to fall asleep and deny that we are sleeping. Then, in verses 16 to 18, Peter made known that he is not doing all of this in vain. He's not giving his life for a cleverly devised myth. It doesn't matter how many people think otherwise, or how many false teachers openly proclaim that the second coming of Jesus is somehow silly, Peter knows that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. For he and two other apostles saw a preview of what his final coming will be like, referring to the transfiguration. They saw Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. They saw his majesty, the majesty that he will be clothed in when he comes on the last day. Peter pointed to this particular eyewitness account so that these Christians and you can be sure that Jesus is coming. He saw it with His own eyes. So we have the eyewitness account that we went over last week. Peter testifying, I saw it, and the two that were with me, we saw it. Now, he is about to point to, in verse 19, the Scriptures. He goes from saying, You can be sure of Christ's return because I saw a preview of it to saying you can also be sure of His return because the Scriptures bear witness to it. He says in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. By saying that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, He is telling us what I saw is not something that is new. The prophetic word has pointed to this long before I saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. That experience just confirms, that experience just confirms what has already been foretold by the Old Testament prophets, which is who I think Peter is referring to in these verses, or in this verse in particular, when he says the prophetic word. He's pointing to the prophets who long ago wrote down what God had revealed to them about the second coming. So what I want to do is I want to take you to some of these prophets and show you how, when they wrote, not only did they prophesy about the first coming of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. But even as they were prophesying about that, you'll be able to tell in this language, this language that we're about to see, that some of it hasn't been accomplished yet. And it's referring to the day of the Lord, as we're going to see. The final coming of Jesus. So you can try to turn to some of these passages if you would like. I'm going to try to go through them as quickly as I can. First passage is in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Here, this passage should be pretty familiar to you guys. We often read from this passage when we are celebrating the birth of our Lord. And for good reason. That's what Isaiah is prophesying about. He's talking about when Jesus will come onto the scene. But again, like I said, we're also going to see that he's talking about something else as well. In chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah writes... And with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see, Christ has come. We know that Christ came. He lived. He died. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And in a way, the kingdom of God is established. His church. We are a part of that kingdom. But yet, this justice and this righteousness from this time forth and forevermore has not come yet. That is going to be ushered in on the final day, on the day of the Lord. The next passage comes from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23. In verse 5, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David... A righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will be secure, will dwell securely, excuse me. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, you see that David's greater son has come. Jesus, But yet, he still has some things that he's going to usher in. This final justice, this final righteousness that's going to endure forever. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, in chapter 7, was given a vision of this one he calls, looked like the Son of Man. This title in the New Testament, when Jesus was on the scene, refers to Himself as the Son of Man more than anything else. And as we read through this passage, you'll see why. Daniel writes in verse 13 of chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, And glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The last passage I want to bring before you comes from Psalm 110. This psalm is what we know as a messianic psalm, it means that it points forward to the coming Messiah. It points forward to Jesus. This is the most uh, frequent psalm quoted in the New Testament. It's the psalm that starts out, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'm going to start in verse 5 at the second half of the psalm. In verse 5, the psalmist writes, who is David, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. So you have all of these passages, all of these Old Testament prophets and these Messianic psalm, this messianic psalm and more messianic psalms and more prophets that we don't have time to look at that testify to the final day of the Lord when Jesus will come and He will establish justice and righteousness in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Then we have here Peter's experience of the transfiguration that confirms that Jesus is the one whom the prophets have been bearing witness to for years. If you remember, whenever Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, and the three apostles were there, Moses and Elijah also appeared on the mountain with Him. Moses, representing the law. Elijah, representing all of the prophets. Then we see the voice, or not see, but we hear the voice of the Father come from heaven, and He says this, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And then Moses and Elijah disappeared, and the apostles only saw Jesus standing there. The point being that the law and the prophets all pointed to Jesus. The law finding its fulfillment in Jesus and in the prophets all pointing to Jesus who is the true prophet. You think of, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about the prophet who is to come and he's telling the people listen to him, listen to the prophet who is to come and he's called the prophet. That's who Jesus is. He is the prophet. The Scriptures are all about Him. So, you need to pay attention to this prophetic word. Peter says, To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I said earlier that Peter whenever he refers to the prophetic word, is talking about the prophets who foretold the second coming of Jesus. That's true. He is pointing to us to the Old Testament prophecies that talked about what he saw when Jesus was transfigured before his eyes. Because in the context of this letter, that's what the false teachers are denying they were denying the second coming of Jesus. They, or we could say, they were denying the final judgment and trying to justify their ungodly way of living. Because if you get rid of the final judgment, if you get rid of this final coming of Jesus, then why does it matter what way you live, what you do? However, so although he is referring in this context, to the prophetic word, speaking about the prophets, what we were just talking about, because of what he says next about prophecy, all of Scripture is in view. He calls us to pay attention to the prophetic word. And then he says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, is inspired by God Himself. It is inerrant meaning without error. Because it is the very Word of God. It is the very words of God Himself. That's why Peter calls us to use the Scriptures as a lamp, shining in a dark place. Like what was read earlier in Psalm 119, what what Eddie read. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When you take the Bible and let it lead you like a lamp in this dark and sinful world, it is God Himself who is leading you, lighting the path with the light of truth. I thought uh, I thought Mike said it well last week when he said that if the Bible is not orchestrated by God, then it is still the most impressive book ever written. All these men, from different backgrounds and historical settings, writing with their own unique writing styles, using different types of literature, but yet all pointing to the same redemptive theme. That theme being that we are sinners and we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. All of the Bible, years upon years, upon years of writing. And it all points to the same thing. It all tells the same story. Different stories telling the same story. People who did not know each other, came from different cultures, a total different way of living, and they write about the same thing that other authors wrote about. Jesus. It is the very words of God. The Bible is an amazing work of art. But it's not just a work of art. Like we said, it is the very words of God. These are the very words of God to the people of God, to you, Alls Chapel. These are His words to you. And these authors, when they wrote were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that when they wrote, they were robots in this process. God somehow taking over their minds and bodies and then using them to write these things. No, that's not what carried along by the Holy Spirit means. This phrase, carried along, has with it the meaning of like a fairy. You know what a fairy is. Uh, The vehicles get on the ferry or people get on the ferry and it ferries you along to something. Well, these authors, you could say, got on the ferry. They physically got on the ferry. But yet God is the one who is ferrying them along to where He wants them to go, where these writings are going, how He wants it all to be designed. Now, there were times when God would speak and tell people what to say like in the prophets that we were looking at. Or He would give them a vision, and they would then communicate that vision. They were called by God to be the mouthpiece of God. That's what prophet means, mouthpiece. They are the mouthpiece of God, communicating His words. So they were called to be the mouthpiece of God in that situation. But even then, they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak with power, the words of God. They were not doing this alone. God was still underneath them, above them, in front of them, behind them, carrying them, helping them to speak His words with power and accomplishing His will, whoever it was they were speaking to, whether they were bringing hope to the people of Israel or casting judgment upon Israel or another nation. But this was not always the case. Other parts of the Bible, like we were saying earlier, was written down by men who used their own personalities, their own knowledge, background, vocabulary, and style to communicate the words of God. However, it was the Holy Spirit who was in the background orchestrating all of this. You can picture it like this. You have a a canvas. And you have all these different authors or these artists that are painting on this canvas. And each one comes to the canvas. He does his artwork. He paints his piece. And then another one comes throughout another part of history. Again and again, all these different authors painting on this canvas. But, you have the Holy Spirit who is, you could say, the master painter, designing all of it. So as they went to the canvas to create their artwork, the Holy Spirit is designing all of it. Their artwork is their own. They painted with their own personality, with their own style, but yet He organized all of it to form one picture, to point to one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be sure that the Bible is the Word of God. It did not come from man's own interpretation of things, and it was not produced by the will of man. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why it is so important that we know God's Word and then take Him at His Word. Knowing that it is true and trustworthy. Letting it be a lamp to us in a dark place. And we let it guide us, as Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. We are called to know God's Word and trust it until the day of the Lord comes. Until Jesus comes in all His glory and majesty and shines His piercing light into the darkness of the world and then shines His glory fully into the hearts of His people. I think that's what Peter means by wording the the day of the Lord like this. Uh, When Jesus comes, He will shine His light upon the world and expose sin as it is. And then He's going to shine His glory fully into the hearts of His people so that they may know it fully. So you have the light without, you could say, like the day dawning and scatters night away, to the morning star that rises up into the hearts of His people. The light rising up in our hearts so that we see Jesus fully. This is what we wait for. We wait for sin to be naked and exposed, for the wicked to be exposed as they are, for the Lord to usher in His righteousness, and then we wait to be made like Him. So as we wait, what are you being led by? What are you trusting in, Halls Chapel? Are you paying attention to the the Bible as to a lamp shining in a dark place? Are you letting it lead you? Like you carry a lamp I mean, you picture somebody in a dark place carrying a lamp. If they don't have the lamp, they don't know where to go. That's what the Bible should be to us. Is it your guide? Do you, like the author of Psalm 119, delight in the Word of God? So not only do you let it lead you But do you delight in it leading you? Listen to what the author of Psalm 119 says. This is how he talks about the Bible. He says, how can a young man, he says young man, but it pertains to all, young, old, women, men. So how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Do you have any inclination whatsoever to delight in the word of God like that? To delight in the Bible like that? I cannot stress that word delight enough. Because what is the point? If you know the Bible but you don't know whom it's about. If you don't know whom it speaks about, who wrote it, the author. Knowing the Bible is not about having intellectual knowledge about the Bible. In a way it is. We were talking about this in verses 3 and 4 when we were saying that we need to have a proper knowledge of Jesus, an intellectual knowledge, a doctrine, a right doctrine. But also, this knowledge brings about the meaning of knowing someone in relationship. So it is with the Bible. It's not about knowing the Bible so you can win an argument, so you can prove somebody wrong. It's not about being the brightest one in the Bible study. It's not about being able to know the Bible back and forth just to say that you know it, that you read the whole thing. Yeah, the Bible, I read it. I've heard people tell me that before. They've read the whole Bible. But yet, their way of living does not testify to that. So what was the point of you reading it? Yes, you boast that you read it. But you have no idea what it means. That is not what our goal is, brothers and sisters, when you read the Bible. It is to know the One who it is about and to know the One who wrote it. So do you have an inclination, any inclination whatsoever, to trust and to delight in the Bible like that? Or do you turn to other things, like the makeshift flashlight of your own wisdom? You can picture someone having the Bible, having their way well lit before them, And then you can have another person who is turned to something else and they have this makeshift, maybe dollar general flashlight that you don't know how long it's going to last. When you need its light the most, it will go out. Our own wisdom is futile. It will surely fail. Don't be a fool like these false teachers who claimed that the Word of God was a cleverly devised myth and then followed their own so-called wisdom. We're about to see where that leads. In chapter 2, Peter is going to start describing these false teachers at length, showing very clearly their folly and wickedness. But they will face the truth in the end. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes, Give account. On the day of the Lord, the day that these false teachers are saying is a cleverly devised myth, the day that they're rejecting, is the day when Jesus will come and all will stand naked and exposed. Again, Peter wants you to know, he wants you to desperately know that he is spending the last days of his life Reminding these Christians and us these things. He wants us to know that Jesus is coming so that we'll be ready. So that you'll be ready. So that Christians will be ready, as we've been saying in our purpose statement, to enter Christ's kingdom on the day of the Lord. Peter stirs us to grow in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus so that will escape the destructive end of false teaching and enter Christ's kingdom on the day of the Lord. So pay attention to what God has given you as a lamp shining in a dark place. The Bible. Now, as we work towards a close, I want to read from the second half of, of Psalm 19. In Psalm 19... The author, David, has written about creation and he has written about the Bible. So you could say he writes about the revelation that we have in creation, how you can see God in creation, and then he turns over and starts rejoicing in the Bible. Who God is in the Bible. I'm going to start in the second half where he's talking about Scripture. David rejoices, saying, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Everything that we just read in those verses, everything that we've just talked about as far as exalting the Bible, lifting up Scripture, talking about how it is inerrant, without error, how it is infallible, how we are called to listen to it, how we are called to pay attention to it, how it is authoritative to us as the people of God. This is where we turn to, to know how to live, to find out who we are as human beings what our purpose is, all of that is true about the written Word of God because of Jesus, who is the living Word of God. As the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel, in the beginning of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, So, church family, as we walk through this world, this time of of darkness, let the Bible lead you as a lamp shining in a dark place. Because if you don't, you will be lost. As I said earlier, we're about to get into chapter 2, where Peter starts out saying, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And we all know that this is true. All you have to do is turn the TV on. And you can listen to them herald their garbage to the world. And if you do not have the Word of God leading you, if you don't know it, if you don't enjoy it, if you don't delight in it, then they will sweep you away like so many people are. So may we pay attention to it. May we delight in it. May we know it. And may we know the One whom it is all about, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come and, oh, how we thank You for Your Word. How we would would be lost without it. Not knowing which way to turn. Not knowing the difference between our right hand and our left. We would be totally lost without the Bible. I pray for these who are before me, and I pray for myself that, we would enjoy Your Word, that we would delight in it, that we would seek to know it. And Father, I know that it is hard. Oh, the days that I myself have experienced when we wake, when I wake up, when we wake up, and we don't want to read it. It's so hard to read. It's so hard to pray. But may we press on. May we know that all that You require of us, You have provided for us in Jesus. May we know Your Word. May it characterize us. May we, as often as so many pastors, preachers have said throughout the years, if we were to be cut, may we bleed the very words of Scripture. And now as we leave, I ask that You would be with us as we go through another work week, as we all face uh, conflict and Struggles, problems, stressful days, untold numbers of things like this. May you be with us and may you give us strength according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.